Hi, everyone. Radhika Jones here, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. With award season in full swing, there's no better time to become a Vanity Fair subscriber. Let our editors take you behind the scenes of this year's nominated films, from prestige indies to major blockbusters, plus exclusive coverage of Hollywood's biggest events. Visit VanityFair.com today and save 10% on a yearly subscription for a limited time with promo code OSCARS. That's VanityFair.com, promo code OSCARS, for 10% off a year of insights and access you won't find anywhere else. Subscribe today while this offer lasts through March 31st, 2024. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to a special Tony Awards edition of Little Old Men, Vanity Fair's award season podcast. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. I am not joined today by our usual coterie just because they're not really theater goers, but I have a couple other uh, theater experts with us who I'll introduce in a second uh, to talk through all of mo- most of the nominees this year. Um, and then after that, we'll have an interview with two Tony nominees, Gideon Glick and Celia Keenan-Bolger, who are both in the smash hit runaway success that is Aaron Sorkin's To Kill a Mockingbird. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but first, this here's our chat about who's going to win what. I'm joined today not by our usual crew, because our usual crew are terrible theater goers, well, partly because they don't live in New York City, but also because, you know, there are certain colleagues of mine who work at other publications who I tend to see out at the theater, so I thought it would be fun to talk to them. Uh, and those two people are Esther Zuckerman, senior entertainment reporter for Thrillist, and Jackson McHenry, staff writer at Vulture. Hello. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yeah. I mean, I feel like yeah. we I've run into you at so many... <laughs> intermissions <Yes. laughs> and hopefully a party afterward uh, throughout the season. So I figured, who better to talk to? Because you both grew up as theater kids, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think we both grew up in L.A. Um, yeah. But every time I was visiting my family in New York, we would go and see a show. And yeah. I remember seeing, like, burned at Peters and Gypsy and, like, having a panic attack. So I was like, this is, that was so incredible. That kind of thing. So Yes. Yeah. I saw the burned at Peters and then saw the Patti LuPone Gypsy like front row and it was in the interview we're running after this Gideon Glick said that Bernadette Peters performing Gypsy at the Tonys was like his big like aha Tonys <laughs> moment uh-huh. when he was a kid so I think <laughs> you're not alone in that so we've all seen a lot this year not everything unfortunately I've, I've kind of fell down on musicals but um, mostly because I wasn't really interested in a lot of the musicals but we'll get yeah. into that but um, what would you say it feels like now that the nominations are out what's the kind of like big overarching narrative of this year is it that 
plays are dominant? Is it that an actor is dominant? Like who? Like what? What's what story do you think the Tonys are telling us here? I think Jackson has a really good. Um, yeah. Well, I think one of the big things it was it was a really full season for plays. There were just so many plays produced. Um, but it really feels like a moment overall where there's this kind of interesting division, especially that came out of the Tony nominations, of newer, sort of edgier, more interesting work that you might not necessarily see on Broadway as opposed to sort of the old standards that are produced. And there's a kind of pretty clear division between those kind of two camps. Um, on the play side, the sort of big juggernaut of the season in terms of sales is To Kill a Mockingbird, and that just wasn't nominated for Best Play. I mean, the nominating committee is a much smaller group of the rest of the Tonys, and for whatever reason, they went for the ferryman and what the Constitution means to me, and ferryman is from England, it's about Northern Ireland, what the Constitution means to me is Heidi Schreck's sort of pretty much one-woman show, there's some other characters in it, and Gary even, Taylor Mack's kind of edgy sequel to Titus Andronicus, but these things where they're sort of indicating we're looking outward. And the same thing on the musical side as well, where there are these sort of revisionist, interesting, like there's an interesting take on Oklahoma from Daniel Fish and um, Hades Town, which is sort of a folk musical that kind of came up through Off-Broadway, um, as opposed to something like Tootsie, this musical ad- movie musical adaptation, um, and uh, Beetlejuice, and even The Prom, which feels like something that's sort of campy and fun, but very kind of old-fashioned Broadway. Yeah, I mean, I think you see it in the musical revival category, which there were only two revivals this year. And one is Oklahoma, which start, which started at Bard, but was at St. Anne's Warehouse at the end of last year. And it's this incredibly striking take on the material that's really stark and dark and scary and sexy. And then you have Kiss Me Kate, which is a roundabout theater production and sort of tried to deal with the ickiness of that show and its gender politics, but is just a straightforward, like, let's see everyone dance to too darn hot type of production. And those are the only two revivals, and they could not be more a more different take on how to revive a musical. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've seen this in the past with something like Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson or Passing Strange, uh, and, and I'm sure there are many more, uh, you know, obvious stories where... Broadway tries to take something cool and downtown. I mean, Heidi Schreck's show, What the Constitution Means to Me, I saw that at some tiny, tiny theater in the Way East Village several years ago. And, I was, and I've was, and i been amazed to watch it progress as far as it has. But a lot of times that gets screwed up in translation. You know, I, I, I would argue that Passing Strange didn't really work on Broadway for a, a staging, you know, reason. But this year, I mean, they seem to have shepherded not only Oklahoma, not only what the Constitution means to me, but Hades Town. Yeah, you know, fourteen I, nominations. More I saw than, it at New York Theater Workshop. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A while ago. <laughs> so, does this give you hope that the powers that be on Broadway, be they the Schuberts or Roundabout or you know the Drew Jamsons or other producers, are they figuring out how to do theater that's both exploratory, edgy, but also commercial, or is this just a kind of minor, weird little anomaly that will be corrected by a million like you know movie to musical adaptations next year? I think it's a sort of it's a, a lot of it sort of is going to have to come out in the sales of it too. That sort of it feels like at least this year the Tony voters or at least the nominating committee have sort of pushed towards these these sort of edgier different things. And for something like Hades Town, I mean, it was looking even this week just after the Tony nominations, it is selling very very well for the theater size the t- that it's in. The tickets are very expensive. Like, um, and and that's a sh- yeah. And I talked to Anais Mitchell, the songwriter and book writer, and, and Rachel Chapkin, the director, on that, and they spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to make it 
it into something that was still true to itself, but also like an event, something that they had, they described as like having whiz bangs, there's a lift and a turntable and there's fog. And I know people who saw it at New York Theatre Workshop and sort of hate that it's become so over the top and people who've said, oh, now it actually works as theatre. Now it's actually like a show instead of like a song cycle. But the sense of at least they are trying to push it in that direction, but it will be interesting to see whether or not that sticks, whether these things stick around for as long. I think you also see, like, you've seen this progression over the past couple of years. Like, I think, you know, the juggernaut that was Hamilton, which has sort of defined modern Broadway theater, was this sort of, like, let's take something small, like, small at the public. I mean, it was always going to be giant, but, like, let's take something from the public and make it this giant thing. You saw, like, Natasha Shapir and the Great Comet, which unfortunately had sort of an abbreviated run, but did have the but did have this like swelling fan base and was this like something that started out essentially as like a performance art piece and moved through all these different venues. So I think it is changing, but then you see this pushback, like, you know, as Jackson said, like the Tootsies and the Beetlejuices, which are sort of going for the big, old-fashioned, like, razzle-dazzle spectacle that you expect. I mean, I'd say the also the other thing about this season that is interesting is it, for me at least, it felt like a really important off-Broadway season. Like, you saw the emergence of, like, Jeremy O'Harris um, with Slave Pay and Daddy, and Pete, there was really sort of exciting work um, that sort of rose in the conversation um, off-Broadway, and I think, you know, Broadway is just sort of reacting to that. On the other hand, after Jackson, Jackson and I went to see uh, Hillary Clinton, one of the plays um, that got a nomination for Laurie Magcalf this weekend, and I was walking by Gary, which is this, you know, a play that you would not expect to be on Broadway. It's a sequel to Tritus Andronicus. It's bloody. They're fart jokes. It's super funny. And I heard an older guy walking out of it and be like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Well, so... <laughs> Yeah, that's the risk. I mean, you know, because you know. like you said, theater tickets are, especially on Broadway, are incredibly expensive. The three mm-hmm. of us are very lucky in that we, you know, a lot of times are seeing stuff for free because we've been invited uh, as press people. Um, so I'll pose to you the question that is often posed to me that I have a hard time answering. And we'll, then after that, we'll get more granular about who's nominated for what and who's going to win. Someone looks at this list of Tony nominations. They're in town, you know, for a weekend in New York or whatever, between now and June, whatever, or even after the, the awards. And they say, I want to see something. What do you recommend to them that like you think is interesting but like not alienating but not too safe or whatever? Like what what would your one show be if someone asked you that kind of very hard question? I Oklahoma. Think. Yeah. I mean for me that would be I mean that's the one I've been telling people, but I think that's also I mean it is weirdly it is a really alienating production, but it's also sort of has this foundation of something that people know and I think it's exciting like risky work that reimagines and reinvents what something that like which it reinvents like what the classic Broadway musical can do and so that's what I've been telling people I think my second choice would probably be what the constitution means mm-hmm. to me because I think it's just like it should be like required viewing for like our entire country <laughs> that sounds like annoying, but I think that's true. Yeah. yeah. And I think what the, one of the things that what the Constitution means to me does well is that Heidi Schreck is giving a real performance in mm-hmm. it. And I thought it was incredible that she was nominated for Best Actress um, as well as, as for writing the play. But it, you feel like it, she makes it a sort of character that she's playing and she's doing this thing where it's speeches she gave when she was 15 in American Legion halls, but revisiting them now in the context of knowing how the Constitution kind of fails, um, and women especially in a lot of ways. And her own personal story, mm-hmm. um, which is... Yeah. 
devastating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I would also say Oklahoma, I think um, I would recommend, or, or what the Constitution means to me. I think Oklahoma is also very fun because it's in the round and the house lights are up for a lot of it. And you can see, especially some of the older theater goers <laughs> who just zone out or yeah. are like, what is happening? Why is this scene being staged in the black? Why is the dream ballet this strange, sexy dance with a woman wearing a dream baby dream shirt? And that is, I think, especially if it's someone that I know that's sort of my age, I'm like, this is not ex- what you will expect from a Broadway show, and you will hopefully find that at least interesting. You can get yeah. chilly during intermission. Well, all right, so that that, <laughs> that, that, that d- diminishes the cost of tickets some, because you're getting sort of a free meal. It's very little. <laughs> yeah, well, you I don't didn't, get much. I, didn't, I saw it at St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn before it transferred, and I did not opt for the chili. But I think you, you w- w- with an audience like that, a, a bit, a bit, well, a bit younger, maybe a bit hipper, more in the know, everyone sat in that brightly lit theater in those really uncomfortable seats, some of whom were right on the stage, basically. Uh, and they all said, well, you know, this is, this is what we came for. But I think on Broadway, that's a tougher sell because people want comfort, you know. But I think I, years ago, my, my first job in New York was selling group tickets to Broadway shows. And on a few rare occasions, really, you know, traumatic ones almost, people would show up with a tour bus full of people to go see The Color Purple or something. And they wouldn't have known that their, their order was canceled months ago because they hadn't paid, you know, something, some horrible trauma like that. And we'd have to scramble and put them into another show. And nine times out of 10, they were really happy with whatever they saw, oftentimes because it was something they didn't expect, you know? So I think if anyone listening has the cash, I would say, take a chance. I know it sounds like a weird, sexy, scary Oklahoma, but like it's all of that in a good way. What the constitution means to me is like really not only cathartic, but I think informative and, you know, so... Super cathartic. And it's not, I mean, not to knock any particular shows, but it's not fucking Mean Girls, you know? It's like... (laughs) But also with Oklahoma, the one thing I'll say again for Oklahoma is that you're still getting Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Like, you're still getting those, like, gorgeous Rodgers and Hammerstein songs in, like, a different, in arrangements that you never thought could exist, basically. So it doesn't, it doesn't rip away, like, the soul of the Golden Age Broadway musical while it's reimagining what that can do. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's get into particulars. <laughs> there are so many Tony nominations each year because they divide up, you know, the, the, it's like the Golden Globes, the, the, the musical <laughs> drama divide. Um, but I, I think we could, we could probably do a pretty thorough-ish if we go quickly. We'll save the biggest for last play in musical. But let's talk about the awards that really people care about, which is the Actress Awards. Um, (laughs) I think that's fair, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, So play this year was an incredibly, it was a hard year to get a nomination in in a leading play. I mean, I mean, um, Glenda Jackson didn't get nominated for King Lear, which is insane. So uh, in that in the running, though, we do have Annette Bening for All My Sons, a production that I thought was surprisingly great compared to the one that they did 10 years ago with Katie Holmes. Um, Laura Donnelly for The Ferryman, Elaine May for The Waverly Gallery. Jada McTeer for Bernhard Hamlet, Laurie Metcalf for Hillary and Clinton, and then Heidi Schreck for What the Constitution Means to Me. Of those, I think three are still running, right? Three are still playing in, in, in those roles. Laurie Metcalf has won, t- won two Tonys back-to-back in 2017 and 2018, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So she's, she's nominated the year before that for Misery. Right. So she's she been very laden of late. So to my mind... That means I don't think she's going to win, especially because we were talking a bit off mic that, that Hillary Clinton, while an interesting idea piece in and a way. And she's great, obviously. And she's great in it. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't feel quite substantial in the way that A Doll's House Part Two by the same playwright yeah. did um, two years ago. Um, or less, less, last year? God. Uh, two years uh, two ago. Years. Two last years ago. year she was in Three Tall Women. That's right. Okay. Um, so, okay. So of those uh, six, who would you say is going to win, Esther, and why? I think I'd 
pick, and again, this is a super hard category, and I, I'm not sure it's right, but I'd pick Elaine May, even though that play mm. is still not running. Um, my caveat is that play is still not running. It's not fresh in people's minds. People may have forgotten about it already, but it's Elaine May, one of the greats of film, stage, comedy, and whatever, and that performance was, if you saw it, if, pe- if people did see it when it was running, um, is just a truly gutting performance is truly gutting um truly brilliant a woman who is in her older age grappling with the idea of getting older um it's this uh kenny lonergan play um about a woman suffering from dementia um and her family and the toll that it takes on her family um it was (laughs) i saw it with my parents and we leaned over and we're like oh my god kenny lonergan like literally wrote what's happening to our family that's (laughs) really insane um, but I guess that's my tentative pick. Um, I think the I actually haven't seen all my sons yet, so maybe Jackson can speak yeah. to whether that's an upset. Upset. Um, yeah. I mean, I would think also Elaine May seems like she has the best advantage, just because also she doesn't have a Tony, um, mm-hmm, yeah. and there's a sense of why not give a Tony to Elaine May. She ha- she does very little press, um, and but I think she has the you know Scott Rudin, the producer. This is this is probably be the thing he's pushing in the category. He also produced Hillary and Clinton with Laurie Metcalf and King Lear, but that didn't get a nomination. Um, and it just seems like she has a sort of, she can coast on a little bit of the inevitability of it. Um, but I can imagine that Heidi Schreck could be appealing because what the Constitution t- means to me is is so buzzy. And Annette Benning is, I think, incredibly good in All My Sons, but that play, its buzz was cut short a little bit just because it, the Times didn't like it, which can mm-hmm. be have such a sort of force of a review. And it's a little old-fashioned. It's the roundabout. It's a revival. It's, it's not necessarily the most thrilling, but... People I, do love on that betting. My other, like, again, I, and this speaks to how wide open this category is, um, I think there could be a moment where the ferryman starts to sweep because, um, and even though Laura Donnelly isn't in that production anymore, that's a, it's sort of like the play to see this mm-hmm. season. It's yeah. this mm-hmm. big, sprawling yeah. epic. Um, the play is actually based on her, like, personal family yes. story. Um, she's partners um, with the playwright, Jez Butterworth. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Maybe if that play starts to sort of overtake everything, people will just sort of by default click her. Bo- I mean, and, and that's not to say she wasn't great in it because she was. Um, but, but, you know, but I think that, you know, we've seen over the past maybe 15 years and uh, roughly a shift where, you know, a lot of celebrities win counties yeah. because they're like, well, good, you're bringing, you know, ticket sales into the business. Um, but I think that maybe we're shifting back away from that. And, you know, um, so speaking of shifting and the ferryman. The lead actor of that show, Patty Considine, is nominated in Best Leading Actor in a Play, as is Brian Cranston for Network, Jeff Daniels for To Kill a Mockingbird, Adam Driver for Burn This, and Jeremy Pope for Choir Boy. Jeremy Pope has another nomination yeah. in another category, yes. right, this um, year? Featured actor um, for Ain't Too Proud. He plays one of the Temptations. Pretty crazy. Um, Can I just say how excited I was that he scored a nomination yes. in this category? Because that play is closed. Um, it's written by Terrell Alvin McCraney, who wrote... Um, who wrote who wrote the play that Moonlight was based on. It's wonderful. And I'm just, I'm actually really glad that the Tony voters, like the nominating committees remembered it Mm -hmm. um, and remembered his performance. And he played that off Broadway as well when it was in, in, I think 2013. And it sort of took Moonlight happening for Choir Boy to get to Broadway, um, which is also shows how slowly things can change in Broadway. Alas, I don't think he'll win. (laughs) Right. Okay. So Jackson, who who would you predict to be the winner in, in lead actor in a play? Um, it seems pretty tough. I, I think Brian Cranston has the sort of, he's the face of network. He's the performance you go to network to see. He, 
even though Network, which is you know adapted from the movie and everything, and directed by Ivo Van Hova, the sort of Dutch director, likes to put lots of cameras everywhere, didn't get nominated for Best Play. Mm-hmm. Um, and there may be a little bit of sort of resentment of oh, good, this guy always comes in and is a little exhausting and over directing a little bit potentially. But I think Brian Cranston is is such a name, and it is a little bit of a the movie stars shown up. I would give it to Jeremy Pope, but I think he kind of has a little bit of the force there. Cranston won for the LBJ show, didn't he? I, I believe think so. Yeah, because yes. this would be a second one yeah. for him. But, you know, I'm curious about the Jeff Daniels. I mean, I don't want to get too much into it because we do have uh, Gideon Glick and Celia Keenan-Belger from To Kill a Mockingbird doing an interview with us after this this chat we're having. Um, but, you know, Daniels was great in it and got great reviews for it, but then the play didn't get nominated, as you mentioned. Do we think that like there's maybe some not like there's a lack of momentum for that show despite all of its like runaway box office success? Yeah, yeah I mean it's little. weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a very hard thing to parse out because um, it is a star performance. I mean he's playing Atticus Finch. It's very much the Jeff Daniels Atticus Finch. Like mm-hmm. if you if you want to picture that in your head and you haven't seen it, you'd probably be getting it right. Um, especially given that it's written by Aaron Sorkin. But you know. I think I'd say a weird disadvantage for him, I mean, is that in some ways he's upstaged a little bit in the show by Celia and Gideon mm-hmm. um, and their and their performances, um, the, the sort of kids' performances. I'm putting air quotes around kids. Right. Um, I could imagine that there is a little bit of me that imagines there could be the sort of backlash backward after the nominations of, well, we can't now nominate this play mm. for or give an award to this play for best play, but we should award it elsewhere. It is selling for so much money and so many of the Tony Froders are producers and even out of town producers and they've already announced a tour for uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, I think also for The Ferryman, but often people are sort of like, well, I want to give a Tony to something that will show up in my theater in Chicago or LA um, and sell tickets for me there. Mm-hmm. But the sense of like, they, 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 a lot of what Aaron Sorkin has also talked about in changing To Kill a Mockingbird and adapting it for this show is changing Atticus's art and making him yes. more of a complicated character. Yeah. And I imagine they will push that narrative. Well, it's interesting you touched on the economics of it because I think, you know, we talk about on this podcast or when we're talking about movies, you know, that there is an Oscar bump that, you know, you'll, if you win a Best Picture, you know, Oscar, or even if you get a nomination, you'll see a box office uptick a little bit if the movie's still playing. But, you know, you also mentioned New York Times reviews of theater. Like, if you win a Tony, I mean, that really changes, a, 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 not, not just yeah. a production, but a tech's financial future. I mean, you think of, like, Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike, like, that every is regional been, theater. every theater in the <laughs> yeah. country has yeah. produced that. And it, I think it really was helped by its Tony. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I could see Mockingbird in that way, kind of, yeah, a producer from out of town who's, like, in the voting being like, you know, I really want that, that play to have, like, and awards attached to it. Now is the month where they bring in all the... Tony voters and all yeah. the producers, then they're like, we'll have Laurie Metcalf perform Hillary and Clinton at midnight, and it will be like a party, and you can come see it. And they do all <laughs> these sort of stunt things to basically just say, you know, want you to be excited about this, have a commemorative tote bag, like, right. you're going to be really thrilled that you can be, like, Tony winning whatever in my town. And I just, in this category, do want to shout out another sort of dark horse, which is Adam Driver in Burn This, mm-hmm. because I think... It's a strange play. Um, it's very dated um, when you see it now. But if you want to talk about like blow you away star performances, like I think he just sort of overtakes the stage and like becomes sort of hard to ignore. So if people see that, like that could be a driver. Yeah, and that was not well, intentional. Well, no, but but if it, it, well, well, <laughs> I, I like to think it was, and I applaud you for it. But um, I think also you think about. <sighs> 
certain people in, on the sort of more business end of, of theater, commercial theater at least, are thinking, you know, the perpetual problem of how do we like interest straight young men in theater. Well, he, this guy's in Star Wars. Like, yeah. you know, like yeah. I know it's like a limited run or whatever, so it wouldn't really actually matter that much. Yeah. But like I can see, I mean, in the same way years ago they gave a somewhat deserving Tony to Scarlett Johansson over a very deserving Jessica Hecht for the same play, which was yeah. A View from the Bridge years ago, not the Van Hove production. Um where like it was like they wanted Scarlett Johansson to have a Tony and because they wanted to bring that star power in staying with yeah. Catherine Zeta Jones right. for a little night music. Though I do think I will say as like a fan of the his performance, like I think it's one of those deserving for performances. Sure. Yes. He's yeah. like I mean he is a theater actor originally. Yes. Um and, and it shows you can you're like your okay. show and, and yeah. you, you see him even across from Carrie Russell who is a excellent actress, but yeah. you see her on stage and you're like, oh she just doesn't have the same experience. She doesn't have the same command of an audience. And you see Adam Driver and you're like, he looks so massive just physically <laughs> mm-hmm. and just like sexy and dark and it's thrilling. It feels you know that that role was originally played by Malkovich and you're like, oh yeah, that's I get it. Like that's the sort of star making potential. Yeah, of a- yeah, it has that Chicago vibe. It's very yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of Chicago, but not that no, I didn't mean it that way. But anyway, let's go to musicals. Um, uh, <laughs> it's you know, like we mentioned, it's been an interesting year for musicals. But there's a good list of nominees. So, um, leading actress in a musical. Uh, is Stephanie J. Block for the Cher show. She plays one of, what is it, three versions of Cher? Three, different ages? Three different Cher's. Um, Caitlin Kinnanen for the prom. Beth Level, the great Beth Level for the, also for the prom. Ava Noblezada. Noblezada. Uh, for Town. she plays Eurydice. And Ke- the great Kelly O'Hara in Kiss Me Kate. I would say of that, my my sort of gut pick would be Stephanie J. Block for the Cher show because she's been around a while. People like her. She's never Same. quite, like the Pirate Queen was... I think closed very quickly. Um, and she's which, nominated for falsettos, yeah. right? Uh, anyway, Stephanie J. Block, uh, that's who I would say would be the sort of sentimental pick, but I don't know. Ava Noblezada for Hades Town, that show is very hot. It has 14 yeah. nominations. Do you think, either of you, that like she could be one of the big breakout winners? I'm going to defer um, to Jackson on this one. I feel like he... I, I feel like it, do, it does feel a little bit like Stephanie J. Block's year, sort of kind of a coronation, the Cher show. She's the only Cher nominated. She's sort of the <laughs> face of the shares. That show, is, I mean, she is fantastic, and it's camp, and look, they're Bob Mackie costumes, and they look great. And she, yeah, she has the narrative, you know, she was originally going to be in Wicked, and then it was Dina Menzel. She's sort of been in the industry for a long time. Everyone I know in the industry kind of loves her. Um, but there is a sense of, yeah, I, I think Eva Noblezada is... Is, is it's her second nomination for her second Broadway show. She was also in Miss Saigon um, when it transferred from the West End, the revival. And she's fun, and she's uh, she describes herself as sassy, and her character is sassy. She, when I talked to her, we did a, a Tony photo studio, and her co-star Reeve Carney, who was in Spider Man um, and is Orpheus in, in Hades Town, and was the only sort of principal Hades Town actor not nominated. And she told me that it was one of the worst things that's happened this year besides climate change. <laughs> um, so she she has a lot. It, it's sort of the Hades Town. She has a lot of spirit and emotion. Um, I, I don't imagine that she could break out it feels like if anything the sort of runner-up maybe Beth Level mm-hmm. um, for the yeah. prom just because she gets to play such a delicious campy character she's playing a Broadway star kind of parody of herself um, she has a second act um, like 11 o'clock number that's 
the fake 11 o'clock number from one of her old shows that she's doing mm-hmm. to impress like someone in the small town where the the plot of the prom is that the, these actors go to a small a small town um, where a student is being discriminated against uh, for being gay and they sort of decide that that's their cause um, and they sort of win over the townspeople and she she does this big like this big number that's very very yeah. funny and very like yeah yeah and talking to her for it the songwriters built the whole song they were like oh yeah she has an incredible C that she can belt like the yeah. note the, the C natural and she just lets loose and it sounds incredible she um, does have a Tony she um, does have a Tony for Drowsy Chaperone for yeah. Drowsy yeah. Chaperone which is sort of a similar role and yeah. written by many of the same creative people yeah. on the creative team um, and it feels like Caitlin Kanunen who plays the young lesbian girl in The Prom is also nominated in the category which was a sort of lovely like congrats nomination I feel yeah. like she also played uh, Kelly O'Hara's daughter in The Bridges of Madison and County, so there's a little reunion there. But yeah, it feels like it, it's a little bit like Stephanie J. Block has the... She's Cher. Yeah. yeah. We love Cher. Yeah, yeah it, it feels like a Cher kind of year. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, she was and at the Met I Gala. Think, I, I think, yeah, and Camp, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. Camp is in now. Um, so also in the prom is Brooks Ashmanskis. I never know how to say his last name. I think that's right. Okay. Um, he's He's been around forever. Uh, yeah. He's also in the prom. Uh, he's nominated alongside Derek Baskin from Ain't Too Proud, uh, which is about the Temptations. Alex Brightman from Beetlejuice. Damon Dono for Oklahoma. Uh, he plays Curly. And then Santino Fontana, who is Tootsie in Tootsie. Do you think that Damon Dono is like, do you think Oklahoma has, is enough of like a critical sort of industry hit that he could win? Or am I crazy? I think, I, I mean, my guess for this one is Santino. Um, okay. Pretty much like I'd be shocked if he didn't win. Okay. Um, I think Damon Dono is fantastic. Um, I just think Oklahoma is so much about the production that every performer is incredible in it, but no one breaks out. Like right. no one breaks out. Whereas like Tootsie, he's playing the Dustin Hoffman role. Yeah. He's play- doing. He's doing both the Michael Dorsey and the Dorothy Michaels of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I. I th- think he's the one to beat he's I mean he's also outside of you know Alex Brightman and Beetlejuice it's like he's the only like other titular character in this like in this race so and I think that counts for a lot yeah I I think um yeah and I think Tootsie Santino Fontana is sort of beloved by the theater community specifically he was in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend but he sort of left primarily to stay in New York and, and keep doing theater um, which I think they love and appreciate. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of like his big starring role. He's doing two roles. He ta- he's talked, I mean, I did a profile of him. He did a profile in the Times. He, he talked extensively about figuring out the range for his Dorothy and figuring out the expressions and mannerisms. I think that there are a lot of flaws in Tootsie. Um, uh, and it's something that actually a lot of people in the industry love and it could could win Mess Musical, but, but it's sort of his performance, just sort of like the technical aspects of it, are, are pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, I would. I think actually Alex Brightman and Beetlejuice is doing more work. He has to do it's a whole voice. Really hard. Yeah, There's I like an incredible video you can find online where his um, ear, nose, and throat doctor showed like his vocal cords as he's doing the Beetlejuice voice, <laughs> which is horrifying but kind of fascinating because it's like he has to do it in a way that will be healthy enough to do eight nights a week. Mm. Yeah. Um, and he does it as sort of a Borscht Belt comic, uh, insult comic, like playing with the audience. And, and that is kind of charming and fun and impressive. Yeah, I think Jackson and I have had this discussion where we have both thought 
Beetlejuice in in the sort of Tootsie Beetlejuice movie adaptation musical like Beetlejuice sort of got unfairly slammed by the critics whereas yeah. Tootsie got maybe overly praised in some yeah. ways but um well the the great theater critic for your publication yes. Jackson Sarah Holdris uh Holdren Holdren sorry um she wrote a pretty ele- elegant takedown of that of yes, Tootsie that, that really, and then I was like, I read that review first, and I was like, oh, here we go, it's gonna be yeah. uh, everyone's gonna tear this thing to shreds, and then no one else did really no. from what I saw. Um, so I think the issues of gender and identity, especially because they decided to set the show now versus back in the early yeah. '80s when the movie came out. But do we think that? It doesn't. <laughs> I, I don't want to use the word woke because I think that word, which yeah. means something for, has kind yeah. of become this kind of like cheap buzzword, but like, um, do you think that like, the voters are that hip to like all that kind of complicated, you know, social justice stuff or? Probably I, not. I don't think so. Yeah. I, I really don't. And I, and I know people I've talked to in the industry who are just like, they love Tootsie. I think the, the best musical race, which we will get to in a little bit, is really between Tootsie and Hades Town, mm-hmm. with potentially the prom as a spoiler. But um, they, I know people who are like, Tootsie is an old fashioned musical. David Yazbek, who's a songwriter who won last year for the band's visit. His songs all have perfect rhymes. They're well constructed. The book is good. And, and like on a superficial level, maybe I, I think a lot of his songs actually just sound like old Dave Yazbek songs. But the sense of like they've tried to update it and they kind of pay lip surface to being in 2019. There's his friend is constantly just like you can't take a woman's job, and then he still mm-hmm. does. And it's mm-hmm. like don't you know that this and then is problematic? Still forgive him at yeah. the end of the mm-hmm. show. Um, Amanda Huss wrote a really good piece for the New York Times about like all these. And many people have actually written about how Broadway is sort of reckoning with these questions, especially in revivals of whether stuff, especially when it comes to gender, um, mm-hmm. still works. But the weird thing with Tootsie is like it's not a revival. It's it's a new musical that's sort of reviving an old story. And then you're sort of like, why? Why revive this old story at this point in time? If you're not going to really try to grapple with everything that it pretends. Yeah. And I think what's grating about Tootsie and something that Sarah wrote very well about in that review and I've talked to her about is the sense that they also still try to turn it, package it as something that is uplifting in the end. That it is something that you are learning lessons from. And their merch is, you know, he still has the speech that's, you know, not Tootsie, call me Dorothy and, and all of these things where it's like, but you're not really fighting sexism with this musical. And in like many of these big adaptations, uh, the director is male, the songwriter is male, the star is even male, even though it's yeah. sort of about feminism now. Um, but there's sort of a frustration, I think, especially among younger sort of theater fans that like at a certain point, like, isn't it enough? Isn't it sort of can't we push towards something different? Right. Well, I think that's a good pivot point then to talk about the best musical race, because the obvious pivot point then would be Hadestown, yes. which has like a long list of women behind the scenes, uh, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of directing and writing and all that um, has some wonderful performances by women and also has particularly in the song that I think they'll perform at the Tonys, a whole big weird messaging about the wall that was written yeah. many years before yeah. Trump, uh, you know, became a sort of political figure. So you do do you both see that as a kind of Tootsie v Hades Town binary or I think so. I mean it's always I feel like sometimes the Tonys like go very easily into this narrative. It's like the wicked Avenue Q narrative of mm-hmm. whenever that year was. Um, but this is almost but this is more vast than than that even. Um, just in terms of like how things were developed, how things sort of like progressed over time. But yeah, I see that's the 
binary for me. It definitely does feel like that, though. The, the, the sort of odd twist this year is that Hadestown has been selling really well. It's expensive yeah. to get tickets to Hadestown, and Tootsie, in, it's in a smaller theater than Tootsie, and they're both making roughly the same amount of money, not to get too nerdy about the grosses or whatever, um, but, but Tootsie has not been at its capacity, and Hadestown is trying to market itself. It's also, it's a young theater owner, owner Jordan Roth of Drew Jamson, who owns the theater, and he showed up in the Met Gala in a gorgeous outfit. He, he sort of is also trying, he's trying to attract young, cool mm-hmm. theater goers as well, and so they are, I think, pushing that very hard. Um, the question is for the older producers, is it, is, is it too alienating? Is it too weird? Is it too strange? Um, because it still is folk music developed by Anais Mitchell, all in rhyme, all ba- based off of Greek mythology. And I keep on having the experience of being like, oh, you know the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. And people are like, wait, which? And I'm like, oh, you didn't read Greek myths as a child? Mm-hmm. And it, I think it's a harder sort of thing to board onto. Actually, yeah. um, a person who sometimes appears on this podcast, Hilary Busis, had a very funny story of going to see it and somebody guessing the ending, and she was like, right. it, don't, don't you know? Yeah, like, like this story has been around for a while. Sorry for telling your story. Hillary, Will Orpheus but, look yeah. back or not? Yes, like, that was, apparently somebody called it in the audience oh, that she well. saw. <laughs> I mean, I think that for me, maybe it's not obvious, or maybe I'm, I don't know, being too general, but like the comparison point would be Spring Awakening, which was young, fresh, had a sort of hip deportment. I mean, this is, Hadestown is not about like youth issues exactly, but like I think in some ways that's what hampers Hadestown is that like Spring Awakening, which was alienating in some ways because they had swears and nudity and whatever, it addressed tangible things in a way that Hadestown maybe doesn't. And so it's maybe the wall song is not quite enough for an older voter to lock into and say, this is why this show's important. Mm -hmm. I'd say the other difference is that like Spring Awakening's music was essentially pop um, and the folkiness of um, the Hadestown score might be more, like Mm. it's beautiful, but might be more alienating than something like Spring Awakening, which did have this incredibly sort of poppy, theatery, like, you know, in the sort of vein of, uh, you know, Rent or something score that fit right in with what people were used to at the point on mm-hmm. Broadway. Yeah. And in Hadestown, I think the other thing that we haven't talked about the featured acting categories, but it has these two sort of stellar performances from Amber Gray, who plays Persephone. And the version of Persephone is she's drunk and she hates going to the underworld to live with Hades all the time. And Hades is Patrick Page, who's been on Broadway. He was in Spring Awakening for a bit, too. Um, um, and Andre Dishy. And Andre de Shields as well as, as Hermes, but the three of them really, um, and especially the relationship between Hades and Persephone, is played with incredible detail. And they both have these stellar songs. He has a song he plays it sort of as a Trumpish industrialist. He wants to build a wall in the underworld, and she has a song that's sort of the act to opener, where she kind of dances around in a drunken haze. Um, and then Andre de Shields. I mean, he was the original. He was in the Wiz, right? He was mm-hmm. the Wiz. Yeah. Um, he's a narrator essentially, but the, the sort of these stalwart older performers that provide kind of the gravitas the show needs for the sort of younger lover arc, which I think a lot of people, and I kind of agree, just doesn't quite compel as much, but it's kind of like, as in like any Shakespeare, where like the two lovers are like, oh, whatever, and then the interesting people are like the much ado Beatrice and And also Amber Gray is one of those people that if you've been like attending theater for the past couple of years um, in this city both on and off Broadway has just like wowed in everything from you know from Natasha Pierre to um, I believe she's in an Octoroon um, which is like an amazing which was an amazing off Broadway play so she's she's one of those people that you're sort of like rooting for (laughs) and funnily enough she was in the original or in this Bard Summerscape like 2015 version of Oklahoma 
um, oh. across from Damon Dono, who was Orpheus in the New York Theater Workshop off-Broadway version of Hades Town. So the two of them have kind of crisscrossed through these two cool hip musicals. The incestuous world of cool <laughs> hip exactly. off-Broadway musicals. So if okay, if you were going to fill out your ballot before we jump to best play for musical, what would your gut pick go? Would it be would it be Tootsie or Hades Town? I'm just going to go with Hades Town because okay. it would make me happy. <laughs> Uh, same, sure. Okay. All right. No. <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, I'm if you're to... wrong, your listeners will. I'll give you your email addresses, and yes. they can. Uh... I, I'm ready to be disappointed. Yeah. Yeah, let's just say, like, I'm gonna go with it, but I'm ready to be disappointed. Um, I would love it if the prom just popped yeah. up. Too. Yeah, the prom, like, just to briefly pause on the prom for like a little bit is like it is an old-fashioned show mm-hmm. it, it is sort of the jazz hands thing but like it's an original story um it's very smart about like current politics um it's you know it's both sort of parodying um the sort of old school you know a chicago type musical yeah. and also sort of the dear evan hansen like let's lift everyone up type of show so it really hits a lot of sweet spots and it is being adapted into a movie by ryan murphy for netflix which is an interesting sort of twist yes yeah and i, okay. I believe not necessarily with the same cast which is frustrating to me because i'm like if you wrote a part for beth level let her do it but um hopefully they bring everyone on um but that and also it has it has issues it's directly about homophobia mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. if you're someone who just like if the i think hades town also so they, they, it's a little bit of kind of metaphorically about climate change, but all in sort of a metaphorical, poetic <laughs> yeah. way. Yeah, you have to squint. You yeah, know, you squint have to lean and, forward, and Tootsie yeah. is, you know, double air quotes about sexism. Um, so the sense of like, oh, I just want to vote for something like doing good in the world. The prom may pop yeah. up at least okay. in that way. Okay. Um, so in, in terms of the plays, uh, the nominees are Choir Boy, uh, The Ferryman, Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus. Uh, what the Constitution Means to Me, and a play we have not spoken about, which is Inc., which is a British import about the early days of Rupert Murdoch uh, forming the Sun newspaper, kind of rebranding the Sun newspaper, which I don't know why the fuck anyone would want to watch that, frankly, but um, <laughs> I have not seen it. Um, but from my mind, I mean, I think it was interesting, Esther, that you brought up the possibility of a ferryman sweep because yeah. that was such a lauded play. Jez Butterworth, whose last production in New York was The River? No. I think so. I think that was after Jerusalem. Yeah, okay. But Jerusalem was sort of his big um, sort of entry into yeah, Broadway. Yeah, was Mark and... Rylance being like, hey, I, like, here, I'm Mark Rylance. Here's <laughs> yeah. what I can do. Um, so I don't know. I, I feel like the traditionalist in me would say the ferryman, even though – it's it's still running, but it's it has a, its cast has rotated out. It's like a little bit older. It was a fall production. I would still go with that. But then I don't know. I look at what what the Constitution means to me, and I look at not only its content, not only that its star also wrote it, that it came from such a humble origin, but also just like it's something different. It's right. it's 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 essentially a one woman show, but it is a play. It's not like Elaine Stritch at Liberty or something. It's 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 it, so we, I I don't know if I were a voter, I would say. I want to vote for that because it's like something I've never seen before. Uh, yeah, I think that's the trick, though. Like, and I think it's also it's American, yes. um, right. which is which is sort of sometimes the the ferryman. There's a sense of a little bit of an American resentment of all these British plays come in and they're well crafted and they have good British cast and everything, but can't we make our own thing? Which I mm-hmm. think was also going to be the campaign strategy for To Kill a Mockingbird. They often, you know, would do press releases highest grossing American play and mm-hmm. all of that. But the sense of and, and it is beautifully constructed and it's it's sort of her engaging with very kind of American specific political questions. And she has a lovely little tangent 
tangent that you notice in the play where she, she talks about, I'm going on a tangent, but I promise this is very well constructed, which I think she may have added after like the initial Off-Broadway Times review was like it's sloppy and messy, which was sort of a surprise slight for that show and, and maybe captures a little bit of the feeling bad. But I think it, it's been kind of it's so impressive, the, the work that she's doing in it. Yeah, I mean, I think if you want to talk about, like, old versus new adventurous work, like, I mean, I think The Ferryman, it isn't the typical, like, this is a sort of staid, old-fashioned, but is very, but it is traditional. Like, it is, you know, it's a three-act structure. It's sort of an epic, uh, it's an epic play. There's, it has a huge cast. Um, it's about the IRA. It's a um, melodrama. I it's mean, a melodrama, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a, like, if you imagined, like, a play about the troubles in Ireland set <laughs> yeah. in a farmhouse, you may be able to spin out a lot of what's yes, happening. Yes, there's a, you you know, there is a grandma that, uh, the, and I'm actually not sure if she's a grandma, that might be a mistake, but um, she's an older woman who's sort of- Maggie far away. Yes, who spouts tall tales. It's very, you know, it is very sort of familiar in a way, mm-hmm. um, even if the subject matter is like tough and meaningful. Um, whereas if you look at stuff like, if you look at Choir Boy or Gary or what the Constitution means to me, that's like not, those aren't plays that you would necessarily expect to find on Broadway. And if you were talking about five years ago, we would probably be shocked that they even made it there. And that's, and by American writers who have worked, you know, off Broadway for many, many years. And that's like really exciting. I do think that voters are going to press the button for the ferryman, though, Um, just because, you know, in terms of scale, it's what you most sort of imagine a best play looks like. Well, I think people, whether consciously or not, are super reverent of the Irish theater tradition, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, both in classic examples like Beckett, but also newer ones like Martin McDonough or um, Conor McPherson, you know, like that... People have a certain – they hold that as a certain – there's a weight to it, you know. And and I think that because it's about the troubles, which like voters like – that was such a big story for such a long time. Still I don't know. is. Actually. It still, well, no, it still is. Yeah. But yeah. I mean like at the height of like IRA and, you know. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I just feel like like even though a lot – most of the voters are American, there's such – especially in New York, there's such an, a kind of connectivity between – New York and Ireland and, you know. If you want to talk about star power, Sam Mendes directed it. I think that's a a big thing about The Ferryman is also like, and I think voters may well confuse, you know, best play is specifically for the writing and there's Mm -hmm. also direction, but I think there's a, it's easily confused the two and The Ferryman is incredibly impressively directed. There's so much on stage. There are babies that are on stage being paid equity minimum as well as a goose. There's a goose. There's a goose. We did a whole photo spread of the goose because I was obsessed with the goose. I still am. It has an Instagram. You can follow it. Peggy. Um, Peggy. Um, they're also understudy geese, but the sense of like really <laughs> trying to like make it feel so vividly alive in the farmhouse with the animals, with the mud, with these kids, um, and that is is really an impressive directorial achievement. And I think Sam Mendes kind of returning to to theater and to doing that after kind of waiting through James Bond for a while is also something. Also, I don't want to get it wrong. Like, I love The Ferryman. I think it, like, I I think it's a fantastic play. Um, It's just a matter of, like, this is the American theater wing. Like, what what should the American theater wing be honoring? Should it be, like, you know, supporting new voices well it's 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 the tricky thing set before you know when we talk about the academy and and movies and 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 the emmys to some lesser extent but like that push-pull between traditional and new and what one voter thinks is is real theater and you know like i i could see an older 
theater wing member seeing what the Constitution means to me and saying, yeah, it was interesting, but that wasn't a play. I had a walk. Like, you know? when I saw it, I, there was a walkout, you mm-hmm. know. Um, I think there's, you know, especially as the play turns, um, it sort of starts out as this monologue in which she explains um, sort of these American Legion Hall contests that she does. And then it gets into this very personal, very devastating story um, that also riffs on that also riffs on the Constitution, but as it gets a little bit more sort of in your face about what it's going for, I think that could alienate some people and maybe some older voters, maybe some male voters. Mm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. There are still some, sadly. Um, all right. Well, before we wrap up, we didn't get obviously we didn't get into book of a musical, direction of a play. We, there are so many categories we didn't talk about. Um, I'm glad Jackson that you brought up some of the supporting players for Hades Town because they're all great. I won't directly advocate for Celia or Gideon because I feel like that's unfair because that's I'm biased. But is there anyone not not necessarily an actor? Could be a craftsperson. Could be a director from any of these nominees who, if you were at a Tony voters party in the next few weeks that you would be like you got to vote for this person this is a weird one but um well it's not somebody who hasn't been honored before but like scenic design of the play Mm. santa laquasto's um set for gary is incredible Mm -hmm. it's this mass of bodies that also sort of trans like transforms into this living item over the course of the play it is shocking and amazing and i'm afraid it's almost like too shocking to win because it's Mm -hmm. like a bunch of bodies with penises like Mm -hmm. sticking out but it like yeah. No one in the Broadway community likes penises, so <laughs> n- never, never heard of. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was I, I. I talked to him about that too, and he, he talked about they, they spent a lot of time. Gary is is I think it's it's wonderful it was nominated for best play as well because it had a really chaotic production process and previews process because Andrea Martin, who was supposed to star in it with Nathan Lane, broke her ribs days before they were supposed to go into previews. They brought in Christine Nielsen, who was the sort of featured actress to to play her the lead, and they brought in Julie White, who is. Always an incredible yeah, comedic actress. I think we both feel strongly about <laughs> Julie White in that supporting actress category. <laughs> um, yeah, she's she's so great. And it was great that both of them were nominated, though Nathan Lane wasn't. Um, but but the sense of like they spend a lot of time then being like, is there too much blood on stage? Is this too gory? How do we stage this very Taylor Mac, the theater artist who created it, this very sort of edgy, bloody kind of downtownish show on on stage? Mm-hmm. That would be fascinating. Another quick one would be in featured actress in a musical. We mentioned Amber Gray but I'd also like to shout out Ali Stroker um, in Oklahoma um, Mm. who plays Edo Annie and uh, she is in a wheelchair she performs the entire thing in a wheelchair it is and but besides that like I don't want to make that all about but she's incredible um, and you know sort of reinventing what that type of role can look like on stage. Yeah, she has the song, I'm Just a Girl Who Can't Say No, and um, she sings it as if, you know, a celebration of sex um, instead of... And and I think also another sort of narrative to mention, um, there's only one nomination for Be More Chill for the songwriter Joe Mm -hmm. Iconis, um, which was a sort of big teen fan base talking about sort of different fan bases for Broadway shows that that propelled it from being a a sort of album that was... was, They did in Two Rivers Theater in 2015. They recorded a cast album that became incredibly popular online and on Tumblr. And that sort of made it to Broadway. Um, and they did sort of a lot of changes along the way to try to make it palatable. It ultimately did not hit at all with the Tony voters except except for his nomination. But it's been interesting to see sort of something that comes in sort of in, in some ways. It, it's, a, it's a straight white male hero who's a teenager who wants to get the girl. It seems like a lot of Broadway shows. But it's also very sci-fi and different and edgy. Um, and sort of that kind of thing 
testing out what, what audiences are palatable. I also to. think there was a moment early in the season when a bunch of people thought that that could be like the Dear Evan Hansen of this yes. year because it is, I mean, because similar to Dear Evan Hansen, it is about a um, white boy with anxiety and the lengths he goes to to make himself cooler. Um, but it just didn't hit that same way. That's also what Hamlet's about. <laughs> Isn't it? Sort of. The continuing <laughs> narrative. It's always, yeah, it's always yeah. a white boy loner. Uh, uh, Danish right. in that case. Well, I know the three of us could talk about this forever uh, because we like theater and theater's fun and people should go <laughs> see theater more, especially when it's free. Um, but uh, we have to wrap up. So... Um, Esther and Jackson, thank you so much. I hope this is not the last time I'll have you guys on to talk about theater. Maybe next Tony season. I don't know. Yeah, that'd be um, great. <laughs> but uh, if people want to find your musings in the meantime, where can they find you, Esther? They can find me on Thrillist.com at, and on Twitter at EasyWrites. Um, right. My initials, not the word. <laughs> right. yeah. uh, you can find me at Vulture or on Twitter at McHenryJD. Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now, we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Little Gold Men is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. They have everything from iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There is always something new to discover because with Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected so you can explore incredible movies streaming anytime, anywhere. Right now, they have a film collection for performers we love, and they are highlighting one of this year's Oscar frontrunners, Lily Gladstone. So I am here with David Canfield to talk about how much we love Lily Gladstone, and especially her film that is now on movie, Certain Women. David, fond memories there. Fond memories. What an introduction. None of us knew who she was before that film, um, but it's quite a thing to be in a Kelly Reichardt film with Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, and Laura Dern and completely steal it. And uh, now we're talking about it to this day. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Little Gold Men. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Little Gold Men for a whole month of great cinema for free. Mubi.com slash Little Gold Men. Well, I have the distinct pleasure of sitting across the table, a very big table, um, <laughs> from two freshly minted Tony nominees from the wonderful, successful hit production of To Kill a Mockingbird, Celia Keenan Bulger and Gideon Glick. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. Um, so I'll ask the corniest question up front. I want to hear where y'all were when, when you have found out that you had been. Tony nominated the morning of? I feel like I, in the past, it, the 8.30 announcement has felt like some sort of torture for anybody <laughs> who exists in the theater since we're like night owls and like to sleep in. Um, but because I have a four-year-old, mm. I was up for two hours before the Tony nominations were announced, which felt like a real win. You had like a full day. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. I'd made breakfast. My son was watching The Octonauts on Netflix, and I was like, William, um, I hate to break this to you, but <laughs> we, gotta change we, have the to channel. we have to change the channel. And he was like, what are you talking about? So, you know, I like woke up for them and uh, and was sitting on my couch with my husband and my son, who I don't think he really, my son didn't really, he's four, didn't really uh, care or understand. But uh, it was exciting. 
Yeah. And then I walked him to school. <laughs> right. Yeah. Puts everything in perspective. It you know, really right? did. Life, life yeah. goes on. And what yeah. about you, Gideon? I tried to sleep through it. I, I thought they were at nine, and my my wonderful fiancé didn't correct that um, on purpose. So I wouldn't um, wake up for them, I suppose. But I wasn't planning on waking up for them. I even took a Benadryl and a melatonin just to sleep through it. And I um, I woke up like two or three minutes before my category was announced just magically. That was the universe doing something. Yeah. yeah. And then I found out and I, I screamed and then Perry screamed and then our dog jumped on the bed and we let him stay on the bed. <laughs> I can honestly say I think I was more excited for Gideon's nomination than my own. I was really... That was like, it was really, really important to me. Yeah. I wanted Will also to be nominated, but I felt like at least one of the other members of the trio. Yeah, yeah. So for those not familiar listening, um, this is an adaptation of the Harper Lee novel done by Aaron Sorkin. And in, as a way, as a sort of theatrical framing device, he puts Scout and Dill and, oh God. Jim. Jim, thank you, sorry. Um, played by adult actors, but acting as children, but as sort of omniscient narrators. And so in doing, the three of you really have to form this very credible bond that kind of is childlike in some senses, but also there's a kind of all-knowing, our towny kind of vibe <laughs> yeah. to it. How did you guys kind of come to that sort of connectivity? I mean, I know you two have known each other for a long time, so was it? did it come naturally? Well, we knew of each other, but we'd never worked together, and we never really hung out. I mean, we really only got to know each other through this process, but it was... but. You know, it's kind of like when you, you meet your, your partner's friends for the first time and all, all of a sudden you gel magically and you're like, oh, this is the right fit. We've had a lot of the same friends and then everything kind of um, meshed magically. And I think Bart would talk about this a lot. He was like, the three of you are so different. Like you're such different humans and you're such different actors and that can go any number of ways and for it's just like the luck of chemistry yeah. I think that we all really valued what we saw in one another and I don't know that we have similar processes but it wasn't like one of us worked completely differently than the other three like we were a very cohesive unit without much work yeah and there's nothing we cultivated I, that's what it just happened mm-hmm. and I'll say I, I think we all think of us three as as one unit, as almost one character. And even the process of getting ready for the show, it's about 20 minutes of going into one another dressing room and just talking. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of connecting. And that's not out of, out of duty. It's out of love. Right. Yeah. And like in a building with 24 people, we are referred to as the kids, right. which is like, <laughs> yeah. okay. So, so when, so when you, this project first came to you both and it was set before you like, okay, you're going to play children, but you're also narrating, you know, it like, did that seem crazy or did it make sense immediately? <laughs> or how, when did it start to make sense? <laughs> it definitely seemed crazy. I, yes. can, I can speak for both of us. And I think just trying to, um, to go through the script, like we had so many questions where we were like, okay, how old are we here? Mm -hmm. And in a sort of amazing way, Bart and Aaron just would never answer it. They would say, okay, let's try the first, you know, the first five minutes of the play. You're like, where are we? Who are we? How old are we? And and we would do it one way as like eight-year-olds. We would do it another way in like 2019, where he was like, maybe you'll be wearing modern dress. Like who Mm -hmm. knows how we're going to do this? And I think what's 
been so interesting is that those answers, we like still don't completely have the answers to those questions and that there is a sort of fluidity. And that even in the run of the show, I feel like things that I started where I was like, I think I'm younger in this section, in this narration, that now I'm like, I think I'm going to, I think I'm a grown up. And I think the audience has no real, I mean, they wouldn't ever clock that. I'm not even sure that Bart, the director, would clock it. But that because it was sort of left open, it's made it what was initially like a big problem for me has become a sort of freedom. Yeah. That's really well put. You you echo it. That's exactly what it is. And I I find what's remarkable is that through this process, how what you thought it was going to be in terms of where we are temporally and, and what our age is has it shifts. It's, it's, it can, what it was two weeks ago is not what it is now. Yeah. And that, that amazing thing about the theater, that it's like only in the theater could we do this. Because, I mean, you just don't want to watch adults playing kids on film or television. But that this way that I think the theater operates where you actually can be 8 to 18 to 41 to 67, like that there's something that one person gets to embody all of that, that that's, it's actually like the most theatrical device. Yeah. And if you have kids in a play. And, and the audience goes along with it. I mean, that the belief is so easy to suspend because Bartlett Chair, the director, like has, and, and his, you know, the, the cast has done such a good job of just selling you on it. And I think also what that sort of agelessness does is heightens the timelessness of the show. I mean, yeah. it is timely to now it was timely then but it also it could be really talking about any moment in america um which is chilling but also kind of heartwarming by the end in an interesting way so i'm curious now you're halfway through the run ish mm-hmm. right yeah, or exactly. the halfway. initial year yeah and obviously the the winds of tumult outside the theater are constantly blowing does that change how you do the show and on a given night depending on what's happening in the world i mean there's a lot of pertinent stuff here in terms of race and justice and all that um do you bring that into the theater with you or do you cut, try to keep it outside yeah i mean as artists it, you can't not bring it into the theater it, it's you you bring you bring your whole being into the into the theater i remember when we were we were doing it we were rehearsing during the Kavanaugh hearings and it was it permeated the air all of a sudden like mayella's testimony just became profound in a just a different way it's a it's the way that the that's the kind of beauty of theater is that it's a living breathing thing so it's interacting with what is going on on a day-to-day basis and so it just shifts it on its axis a little bit yeah I remember feeling like for the first time ever I was like we have to be an advocate for Mayella Yule and I was like this racist really <laughs> this liar but that suddenly I felt like okay if we're going if we're doing this play about a woman who is falsely accusing a man of rape why does she do this like what and that it, you could not help but be influenced by I mean we were like sitting in a corner like listening to the hearings and then getting up on stage and and it is I mean I worry that because of the state of our country, we're, there's going to be way more of that. And certainly, as the events unfold in our country and, you know, black men are gunned down in the street and and there's no justice, you can't help but sort of absorb some of that and feel like it is a part of, of what we're making. And it's also just been so interesting, like the difference between the audiences at night and the student matinees, like mm-hmm. how the play resonates I think so differently because I think a lot of our audiences in the evening are, you know, looking for a place to process the events of our country right now and sort of where we've been and where 
where we are. And the kids are are having a completely different experience. I mean, I think they're also, they, it's not lost on them, you know, that it has a lot of resonance right now. But I remember talking to some students after a show and I was like, were you surprised when he was found guilty? And they were like, no. Right. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And they were like, not just because it's 1934. Like, that guy, he's, you know, he's guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I, and that's, you know, I was going to ask you about that, that sort of, um, what you'd heard in terms of feedback or whatever, um, because because I guess I had read the book in school at some point, but didn't really remember. And so, you know, I thought about Atticus Finch and I thought about Scout. And I was like, well, it's a kind of cozy, you know, homespun. And it's really fucking not. I mean, it's like <laughs> a dark, sad, urgent political story. Um, so were either of you familiar with the text before? I mean, like really intimately familiar with the book before you jumped into this project? Or I, For me, it was actually, it was a really big transformative process as a, as a critical reader and a critical thinker. It was the seventh grade, and it's how I learned how to suss out metaphor and theme from, from a book. So for me, it was more about how to engage with art and text and literature. But the, in terms of the themes of you know, social justice and so forth, it didn't really hit me until I reread it recently. I didn't really understand how truly profound it is. Yeah, it was, my parents were like super lefty socialists mm -hmm. and I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. And it was one of the first chapter books that my mom read to me, like before I could read chapter books, like we sat and read it. And it was sort of, there's this line in the play at the beginning, I say, you know, Atticus took us to church on Sunday, but this courtroom was his chapel, and so ours too. And the first time I read that, I was like, that's like the Bible in some houses. I feel like To Kill a Mockingbird was this, like, moral manual in our house that was—and it was—the race conversation certainly came up. And I, I think we—after I watched the movie, like, we watched the Sidney Poitier Separate But Equal movie. Like, there was a lot of talk about race and education and integration and segregation— but that it was the most, I think, the theme that, that my parents kept coming back to, which was, like, understanding where other people are coming from and walking around on somebody else's skin, that that was just, like, a big theme in our house. And it was all this springboard from this book that Harper Lee yeah. wrote. But, you know, like many people, then I didn't revisit it. I think I read it again in eighth grade and then, you know, never came back to it. Yeah. And this production, I think, really interestingly interrogates you know, the, the kind of potential limits of that, what is it like to walk on another person's skin, you know, because Atticus is sort of almost morally relative to a fault, you know, because, and, and I think that the character played by Latanya Richardson Jackson so well, sort of she's like pushes back against basically the kind of stolid, you know, heroism of Atticus Finch. And, and there's a kind of more nuanced version of him that we see in this production. How do you think Scout and Dill change in the stage version from the book? I mean, is it, do you feel like you're playing a different version of who Harper Lee made? I think this entire production is just a little more critical of Atticus. And so I think Scout's version of her father in the movie and in the, the book are just through the eyes of an eight-year-old. That's like, this is this hero, this moral hero that she worships. And I think Aaron Sorkin has sort of let the kids push up against their father a little bit more in this version. And again, you know, because I'm getting to play it as an adult too, like the way that I watch Atticus, and these are things like, <laughs> I'm not sure that the audience would even really notice, but 
how Scout watches her father once she's grown up and is able to sort of say like, oh, there there are holes in your exterior and in, in what you believe. Um, so I think in that way, everybody is just sort of looking at this at this man through a different lens. And so in, the, in that respect, I think Scout is a little bit different in this movie or yeah. in our version. Also, Dill, I, I think the whole experience of Dill has been excavated in, in, in a, a really surprising and extraordinary way. I, I think this is a character that doesn't, in the book and in the movie, is, is not necessarily one that kind of comes to the forefront. And I think that has somewhat to do about how we engage with queer identity. I mean, we're in 2019, looking back in the 60s, looking back in the 30s, but I don't think a character like Dill could be the way that he is until, until now. And th- it's a play about... It's a play about race, but it's also about intersectionality. It's about these identities and and how we perceive them and how we embrace them. And I think that's uh, what's happened to Dill and the way that people have, um, even the audiences have engaged with Dill is indicative of our modern times. Mm-hmm. And that for me is, is very moving. Well, yeah, I mean, at the end, um, when it's revealed that, you know, the Finch kids never saw Dill again, you know, you realize that that's sad on its own merits because they were good friends and then, you know, he's kind of lost to the very, very much pre-internet time when you couldn't just connect with anybody. But also then you think about, well, okay, so what other things was still facing and, like, what what could he really have been lost into? Yeah. That, yeah, it gives the play a sort of added dimension. And yet at the end, despite all that melancholy, I feel like I walked out of the play feeling like, that was, I mean, well, for one thing, it's a really nourishing, solid piece of theater. So that's always good to see. Um, that doesn't, you know, sort of obfuscate with like special tricks. It's really just a nice, you know, straightforward work. But how do you guys feel when you're done? I mean, with a show, like, is it is this a really exhausting process? I mean, because it's a lot of work, but do you feel any of that uplift yourselves? Or I would say it's a, it's. I mean, I, I can't speak for Celia. We have we have different experiences with it, and Celia is is the engine of the entire show. For me, it it is hard. It's a long show, but it's so immensely rewarding. And also, that that has to do with the audience. When you hear them, when you see them at, at the stage door, when you uh, when when you're bowing, not in terms of the way, not in terms of the adulation you're getting from the applause, but really they're showing how much they enjoyed it, and that's really moving to me. And and you hear their sniffles, and you, you, it, you know, it's hard as an actor to be like, what, what is the point of all of this? Mm. And this show has has made me feel that there is a point. Yeah, I feel like I've never worked so hard, and also been so gratified. It's like however much it taketh away in those three <laughs> right. hours, it really replenishes. Like I don't think we usually leave the theater anything but on a little bit of a high Mm -hmm. and feeling like, you know, even in the hardest shows or even with the hardest audiences, that there is a sense, there's like a tiny bit of duty in it, that that we get to be a part of this cultural moment. And, you know, not every piece of theater needs to be that, but to be on Broadway in something that does have the relevance that it does and that I think is actually giving audiences a space to come together. I mean, that's something that I've been so moved by. And maybe I'm just projecting this, but I I think we are as a culture right now, like really, really hungry 
to come together and process these big questions. And there just aren't that many spaces to do that. It's like church, and I'm not sure exactly where else. Twitter, of course. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that it's like in the yeah. comfort of your own couch yeah. it's a safe where you don't ever have yeah. to engage with one other person except over the internet. But that I think there really is, I've been so moved. Like I you know, look out at the audience a lot and you know, people come in and are you know, having their experiences. And so often by the end, like people are holding hands or like have have moved nearer to one another through the course of the play. And it's like, if that's the only thing that we give them, that actually feels pretty remarkable mm -hmm. and, and important, um, regardless of what they thought about the experience. But that, you know, I think we really, we're lacking for those spaces right now. And that art, I've talked about this a lot on this process, like during these times that sometimes I have felt embarrassed to be an actor, that it's just like, what is it all for? It feels so self-serving. So to be a part of something that I, I think actually is helping yeah. is really meaningful, especially on Broadway. Like right. that feels yeah. like yeah. a super gift. Well, it's like when I like review End Avengers Endgame, I'm like, I'm really contributing <laughs> to society here. Um, so we have you on, this is our sort of, we talk mostly about movie awards, TV awards, but like, as I'm a big theater fan, I was, I'm happy that we're doing this kind of special Tony's. <laughs> Um, edition. So I'm curious, um, obviously now, you know, you've been a nominee before, this is your first time, so that'll be a whole, it's a whole unique experience, but as viewers of the Tonys, which I assume both of you have been for Since a long we time. We, we yeah. little people. Yeah. Um, do you have particularly vivid memories of, of a particular performance or a particular win that really excited you? I would say Bernadette Peters performing Gypsy. Oh, sure. On, on the Tonys. That is something I... I um, rewatched a plenty. I thought it was such a, such an impressive performance, also out of context. That's what I don't understand: is that you're doing a, a snippet of your show in Radio City Music Hall. It's a completely different venue, and yet she, it was so powerful. I can't talk about it without getting chills. And it's <laughs> showing you how gay I am. But it really just like, it, it's one of the great performances. And there it was just on the Tonys. And that's why the Tonys has been so exciting to me. Because as a kid, my mom and I, and, and, and my brother and sister, we would, get, we would get sparkling cider. And it was, the, it was an event mm -hmm. because we love the theater. And we got to see these performances that we didn't get to see all year because we were living in Philly. We weren't going to the theater all the time. And so it's such a gift to people across America and the, the, especially young people who really are thirsty for it. I'm going to show my age here. <laughs> but that Will Rogers Follies, it was like the the political song from that where they it was like all of the women doing the most incredible dance where I like would sit in front of the television and like learned it but of course then like was learning the mirror version of it so like when I got to college they were like oh we're gonna learn this and I was like oh I already know this number <laughs> except it was like See, the opposite the right. of everything but like that number that like looms large and then there was a season where I we like recorded them on you know the VCR which was like the secret garden once on this island I think Miss Saigon. It was like a that was crazy the same year? year. That's crazy. And just over and over and over again. And like watching Daisy Egan win and being like, maybe someday. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, yeah, it was, um, 
Those awards were. And you know, if you lived, I lived in Michigan. I lived in Detroit. We did not make trips to New York. I saw all of my theater through national tours. So it was like the glimpse into Broadway for me. Like that was the place where I was like, this is what's happening over in that big city. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, I mean, I remember in college, a friend of mine, uh, she had, she revealed late in our friendship in college that she had like every Tony's from like 1985 on on VHS, like recorded from her television. Oh my gosh. And I was like, well, we're just going to drink box wine and That's watch right. those for the rest Correct. of college, which we did. Um, Glenn Close singing uh, Sunset Boulevard. Uh, uh, that's great. Um, Glenn Close announcing South Pacific winning, and she said she sings some Enchanted Evening, and then says South Pacific, and it's, that's that's a great memory. Um, now, you did you perform with Spring Awakening? Uh, yeah, I did. So I, I went to the Tonys that year. Right. It's the only time I've been to the Tonys. Right. Um, and we did perform, and it was, um, I pooped my pants. Yeah. I mean, it was so nerve-wracking. Yeah. Again, it's out of context. I think that's the crazy thing, is to do anything out of context baffles my mind. It's like right. singing at a concert. You're not your character. You haven't established this space with the audience yet. It just, it baffles me. Yeah. It's why the jukebox musicals always look the best at the right. Tonys, where you're like, just, that looks oh, you're incredible, so right. yeah. because you're able, and then it's like anything with like like a Sondheim situation or an Adam Gettle situation, <laughs> like, you're what? like, what's going on here? <laughs> like Did you just spelling bee with it there? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and Peter and the Starcatcher, oh, even before? though it was a play. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because I was going to, I remember... I don't know how long they did it for or when they stopped doing it exactly, but they used to do scenes from oh, the yes. night, like, God, from like don't. plays, yeah. right? Like, but I kind of know, I kind of crave it again. Oh, no. Because it was always, it was talked about out of context. <laughs> yeah. It was really? like one armchair and a lamp from and the set. And then people just like, like acting up a storm. Yeah. We yeah. were like, okay, yeah. all right. I also remember that. So what will, be, what will be your approach to the big evening coming up? I mean, Gideon, you have a big suit bag with you that I think you're <laughs> taking to the, to, tailor, to the tailor. So that's, that's happening. But are you going to make a whole big night of it? Are you? I mean, Gideon and I first met at the at the O and M Tony's yes. party a couple of years ago. Oh my God, this is so full circle. Yeah, right. Well, here you are. Here yeah. we are. Yeah, then I'll just wave to you from afar now. <laughs> yeah. I'll be like, who are you? <laughs> oh right. Um, are you going to make it a big to do, or I mean, how, what's your approach to like an awards thing like this? Do you know what I think is really the last time I was nominated, my show had already closed. And I viewed it as such a gift where I was like, oh my God, all I have to do is like go eat chicken Mm -hmm. and like have a glass of wine in the middle of the day. I don't have to do anything. But I do think in a strange way, it does make the awards themselves loom larger in not a good way. And that like the day leading up to the Tony Awards, we will be performing a matinee at 2 p.m. Oh, okay. So it's like, in some ways, the great equalizer, it's like we we do all of these press events leading up to the Tonys. There are all of these luncheons. There's like a lot to do. But at the end of the night, every single night, we go and do the show. And I, as exhausting as that is, I actually think it just reminds you like you're here to do the work. And that that was something the year of Glass Menagerie. I think I got caught up in like the awards of it all because I didn't go back. Yeah, I didn't go back to the theater every night and remember like why I was there in the first place. And so in a nice way that day, you know, we're going to start with all of our people, those that cast of 24 that have worked so hard as we have. And then we will get to leave that space and represent all of them, you know, for the rest of the night. I do hope we're at that O&M party real late though. I think someone needs to do a documentary on a woman being nominated for 
let's say, best actress in a musical and follow her, follow her through that day when she puts on her hair and makeup. Let's, let's just say Stephanie J. Block because she has to put on all these wigs and, mm-hmm. and makeup and costume. Then she has to take it all off. Get ready for the red carpet. Go do the red carpet. Then take all that off again. Go into her costume. Perform on the Tonys. Then take that all off again and go back to her red carpet look. <laughs> I mean, this is this is the work. Crazy. We are workers. We are yeah. workers. Yes. And I, I think it's I, someone just needs to, to document it. Because I want to watch it. Well, you've given VF.com an idea for next year, I think. <laughs> we have Brandon Uranowitz, I think, is going to do a little Tony oh, Nominee's Diary for us. Yes. Which Lovely. I think will be cool. Um, because, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, I mean, I'm sure it's hard work to be nominated for an Oscar. But, like, you're not doing the show. You know, Correct. you're not doing the movie, I don't yeah. think. Unless you're, I don't know, doing reshoots or something. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's kind of another example of why, you know, theater, for all of its occasional glamour, keeps, keeps people humble. You yes. Know? You're yeah. certainly not there to get rich and famous yeah. you're there yeah. to just you you're there because you love it yeah well you got tony nominations out of it so yeah good, good, good work um gideon celia thank you so much for coming in and doing this really appreciate it i oh know that gosh. this is a very busy time for you both um but again congrats on the show and the nominations and everyone who has a chance i know it's like hard to get tickets to but if you can see to kill a mockingbird on broadway it's well worth your time thank you guys thank, thank you, for you. That does it for this special Tony's edition of Little Gold Men. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And don't worry, next week we'll return to talking about movies and TV and leave us theater nerds back in the cold of Twitter or wherever we normally are.